When I was a kid growing up in Texas, uh, during the summertime, we used to have great rubber gun fights. I don't know if any of you can uh, remember those days or care to think back that, uh, that far to remember them, but uh, we used to spend uh, the spring whittling uh, guns out of, out of wood, and then we would look around for uh, pre-World War II inner tubes because they were made out of real rubber rather than uh, synthetic rubber, and they stretched better. And we'd put uh, clothespins on the on the handle and tie it down with a strip of rubber so that it would hold and and cut these long strips of uh, inner tube, which you'd fasten in the uh, in the clothespin and then stretch out over the end of the gun. And that was a great sport in the summertime. We all ran around without shirts and just with shorts on, and we'd come in at the end of the day with big red welts all over us from our, <laughs> our rubber gun fights. The problem with a rubber gun is it was very unpredictable. And uh, sometimes when you draw a bead on someone and you'd, you'd push the uh, clothespin, one end of the rubber would come loose, the other would stay fastened, and you'd shoot yourself right in the face. <laughs> and many times I came in at the end of the day with red welts all across my nose. I uh, remembered that activity when I was studying this passage because last Friday I had, uh, had everything put together and the lines drawn and uh, had this thing all stretched out ready to shoot you. And... Uh, and shot myself right in the in the heart. I, I uh, have seldom been so wounded, I think, by a passage of, of Scripture. And uh, I think it will probably strike you the same way. It's one of those uh, passages which, uh, which, which are intended to wound and, and do so. It's unavoidable. Uh, turn with me to the last half of chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2. 11 through 22 is the uh, paragraph. Let me uh, read it as you follow along. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by those called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Messiah, excluded from the state of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the hostility, the hatred, which is the law of commandments composed of many ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both, both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have our access to one sp- in, in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, or every building being fitted together, is rising into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's the text. Uh, It revolves around uh, three phrases. The first is found in verse 11. Formerly you, the Gentiles. 
verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 19, so then. He first calls their attention to uh, their past state of alienation from uh, God and from one another and points out that the same will that separated them from God separated them from one another. And uh, then he, uh, he recalls to their mind, calls to their attention, what Christ has done in the cross in reconciling these two disparate bodies into one, creating a new humanity, a new human race, and then reconciling that race to God. And then the consequences follow in verses 19 through 22. We are citizens of a uh, new state. We are members of a new family. And we're integral parts of a new temple. Now, um, he begins by reminding them of their former state. Uh, There are many things that uh, we ought to forget. There are a lot of things that I would like to forget, but there are some things that we should never forget. And uh, one is our former state, what it was like uh, before we were reconciled to God. Paul says to these uh, Gentiles, you remember what it was like back then? You called the Jews uncircumcision. They called you uh, pardon me, you call the Jews circumcision, they called you uncircumcision. Now, originally, circumcision had a, had a purpose. It was a sign. It was a symbol of the relationship that Israelites had to God. It was given to Abraham as a sign of the unique call and the un- unique uh, uh, intimate relationship that he had with God. God promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations and And through him, all the world would be blessed. And circumcision, this uh, simple surgical procedure, was uh, the sign of this uh, covenant, this unique, intimate covenant that God made with, with Abraham. But unfortunately, over the years, it lost its meaning. It no longer signified uh, anything personal and intimate in terms of their relationship with God. It was just uh, an outward mark in the body which Jews used to distinguish themselves from everyone else. If you bore the marks of that surgical procedure, then you were on the inside. If you didn't, you were on the outside. And because the Gentiles did not believe in circumcision, they were on the outside. Some of you uh, may have read to your children the Dr. Seuss uh, book, about the star belly sneetches. And uh, you may recall that the sneetch world was divided into two groups. There were those who had stars on their bellies, and there were those who had no stars on theirs, as uh, Dr. <laughs> Seuss says. And uh, the, the sneetch world, the sneetch race, was divided into two categories, those that had stars on their bellies and those that did not. That's essentially what, uh, what uh, these Jews were doing. They were, they were thinking merely in terms of some outward and external sign. As long as you have uh, circumcision, then you're, you're, you're on our side. You're, you're with us. But if you don't, then you're on the outside. Now, unfortunately, the whole thing degenerated into name-calling, which is what we tend to do uh, in order to distinguish ourselves from other people. We, we make up dirty names for one another. The, uh, the, the Jews referred to the Gentiles as acrobustia. Sounds terrible just to hear it. That's the word that's translated uncircumcised here. Basically, it means foreskins. Uh, 
That was the name that uh, the Jews called Gentiles. Foreskins, they said. And uh, the Gentiles retaliated by calling them circumcised. The, the, the uh, translations have tidied up the word a bit. Uh, basically, it means to cut around. Peritomo means to cut in a circular fashion. We would say uh, butchers today. So uh, Jew and Gentile went through life calling each other uh, foreskin, butcher. Now, really, when you think about it, it's, it's very, very infantile. Very childish. That's the sort of thing we do when we're kids. I, I was working out in the front yard uh, the other day, and a little girl from down the street came by. She's, I don't know, about five, maybe six. She's just cute as a bug's ear, flaming red hair. And she had somehow gotten into a tiff with the neighbor girl. And uh, as Olivia walked back to her house, the, the little neighbor girl was taunting her. She was yelling at her. And Olivia stood it about as long as she could, and she finally whirled around and balled up her fist, and she said, Ninny booger, she said. <clears throat> I laughed so hard I just fell over on the grass. And it, that's probably the dirtiest name she could think of. That's the sort of thing you come to expect from children, and it's relatively harmless, you know, and with, with children, although we try to train it out of them. But basically, isn't that what we do when we look at someone else of a different race or a different culture, and we call them spick or dago or nigger or all of the other dirty names that we think up to call one another? That's the sort of thing that Paul is talking about. The, the, the Jews called the, the Gentiles an ugly name, and the Gentiles called the Jews an ugly name, but we're no better off. It, it, there's this great hostility that one group has for, for another that we express in, in very childish but very wicked and, and evil ways. It's that sort of thing that Paul is talking about. He, he says, think back on what it was like when you used to call each other names, when you were separated from from one another. And furthermore, not only were you separated from other members of the human race, you were separated from God. Remember, he says in verse 12, that at that time you were separated from Christ. As you know, our English word Christ is a transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which in turn is a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means Messiah. So that this is not a name, it's a title. You were separated from Messiah, Paul is saying. You didn't have a hero to look forward to. Everybody needs a hero. You know, a superman or, or somebody who will drop into your life from, from outer space and do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And they, they look to all of their heroes for help, politicians and educators and philosophers and Social scientists and husbands and wives and counselors and others. and they, you know, they didn't have a hero. They didn't have a Messiah. They were separated from the Messiah that, that Israel had. Excluded from the state of Israel, this great uh, nation, this commonwealth that God called into being and through which he intended to bless the world. You, you weren't a part of that, of that nation. Strangers to the covenants of promise. The promise is the promise given to, to, to Eve that uh, 
one day her, one of her descendants would bring an end to sin, a promise that was uh, reaffirmed to Noah and then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Judah and, and David and, and to all of the patriarchs and, and eventually was fulfilled in the coming of, of our Lord Jesus. And uh, you had uh, no hope, he said. These Romans had gone through the uh, golden age of, of Greece, the great classical era, when uh, so much, uh, so much, uh, there was so much expectation that the great philosophers of that age would come up with an answer to all of the problems that plagued the human race. But by this time, they, they had no hope. They were in despair, utterly in despair. Uh, much as many people are today. Someone told me about a bumper sticker the other day that read, Honk if you believe in anything. Which is sort of where these, uh, these people were then, and, and so many are uh, today. They were without hope. And uh, finally, they were without God. They, they had numerous gods. They were polytheists. They, they worshipped dozens of gods. They even had, as Luke tells us in the book of Acts, uh, a statue to an unknown god so that they wanted to be sure they covered all the bases. They didn't leave anyone out, exclude any gods that, that might exist. But, but Paul says, essentially, you were, you were atheists. You were without God. Hopeless. Godless. Friendless. Stateless. Without uh, anything to look forward to. Alienated. Disenfranchised. Strangers in a world where uh, we ought to feel at home. And, and there are so many people that feel like that today. Uh, back in the 60s, Joan Baez was singing about uh, our being orphans in a world of no tomorrows. And, and things haven't changed. People feel as though they're, they're orphans today. They don't belong to anything or to anyone. They're disenfranchised. They're separated and isolated and, and, and lonely. Cut off from the rest of, of the human race. And uh, engaged in a, a kind of endless rat race like Piglet and Pooh following one another's footsteps around the tree uh, with no way out. Paul Goodman, who wrote the book uh, Growing Up Absurd, comments that in a closed room, that's his description of the universe, it's a, we live in a closed room, there's no help from the outside. He said, the only set of values is the rat race, which everyone in the room espouses, but everyone in the room despises so true. People just chasing their tails, just endlessly circling with no place to go, no hope, no God, no real friends, no place to belong, separated, isolated, alienated. But the good news is that now, in Christ Jesus, verse 13, verses 11 and 12, that describes the bad news. That's the way it was. But in verse 13, the good news is that Christ Jesus, by the cross, has taken all of those who far, formerly were far off, and, and he has brought you near. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the hostility, which is the law of commandments, which is spelled out in multitudinous ordinances, rules, regulations. This idea of being far off and brought near is one that's embedded deeply into the Old Testament. It, uh, it began with Moses' speech 
to Israel on the uh, uh, on the banks of the Jordan River and the plains of Moab before they went into to Canaan. Moses told them that you were going you're going into a, to live with people who are far off from God, but but you're near to God. In fact, people will look at you and, and they'll say, "What what people are like this that are so near to God?" And uh, that's that's why God drew Israel to Himself. He brought them near to Him so they could bring the whole world near to Himself. The principle that runs all the way through Scripture is that if you draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. But the question is, how do you draw near to God? It was Israel's function to tell people how to draw near to God. The law was given to them for that purpose. The law has three parts. There's the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments and the explanation of those Ten Commandments that follows in Exodus 21 and on. And uh, the civil law, which had to do with uh, the way individual Israelites related to one another and how they took care of their families and raised their children and raised their crops and tilled their fields and and how they took care of uh, orphans and widows and those on the outside. And then there was the ceremonial law, which was designed to show people how to worship God acceptably and how people could be brought into fellowship with God. It was God's intention that Israel go into the darkest place on the face of the earth and live out the life of God so that people would look at, at Israelites and say, My, what a wise people. Look at the way they raise their children. Look at their concern for orphans and widows. They, they don't till the, they don't uh, harvest the corners of their fields. They leave them so the poor can glean. And uh, they don't rob birds' nests. And they take care of, of the environment. And uh, they love each other and they care for each other. My, what wise people! What people are as wise as this? And, and then they could, as they were drawn by the, the character and uh, the wisdom of these people, they could be introduced to God through the, the ceremonial law. But unfortunately, what Israel did is use the law to isolate themselves from the rest of the world. And, you know, God and our kind are on the inside. All you Gentiles are on the outside. You're not circumcised. You don't keep the law. You don't dress the way we do. You don't eat the food that we eat. You don't worship the way we do. You're out of it. And so instead of using the law as the means by which they could draw people near to God, they used it as a way to keep people away from God, to exclude them, to keep them far off. And it's always in the nature of things that even those things that God creates, he will destroy if we abuse them or misuse them. It's true of the ark. When the ark became a, a lucky charm, a talisman, a magic, uh, a thing they used uh, like magic, then he destroyed the ark. When they used the temple that way, he destroyed the temple. And when the law fell into abuse and was used this way, the law was, was set aside. Now, as is very often the case, sometimes these, these ideological barriers that we erect become real, concrete barriers, and that's exactly what happened. The, the, little, the little temple that the exiles built when they came back from Babylon was embellished by Herod the Great, and a number of features were added to the temple that were not a part of the original provision. God gave the, uh, the design of the temple to Solomon. But the design was, uh, was changed, and by Paul's time, it had changed markedly. At first, the, the priests who, who had to have access to the, to the temple, 
because that's where they carried out their uh, their ministry, uh, were the closest to the temple. And the priests, after a while, decided to exclude everyone else. So they, they built a wall that kept lay people out so that only the priests had access to the temple. After a while, the laymen decided that they needed to keep the women out. And so they built another wall. Uh, and there was another court, a half dozen or so steps down, where the women were kept in their place down there. And then the laymen and the laywomen got together and decided to exclude the Gentiles. So they built another wall, and uh, there's some question about this, but it, it seems like... Uh, from the reports of Josephus and others, that the, the court of the Gentiles was probably 20 or 30 feet lower. So the Gentiles were way down on this lower level looking over a wall. You could just barely see what was going on in the temple. And it may be that Paul has in mind uh, this literal barrier when he describes uh, the hostility between Jew and Gentile in terms of, of a wall. Paul himself had reason to... Uh, know about that wall when he inadvertently, well, it wasn't his fault, he brought Trophimus, who was an Ephesian, into the uh, part of the temple that was reserved for Jewish men. And the Jews thought that Trophimus was a Gentile, and they almost uh, killed Paul. They had no concern for Trophimus if he were a Gentile. It was this, it was this barrier. And as a matter of fact, uh, there was a, a sign on the gate that said Gentiles, uh, if they went through, if they trespassed, they did so uh, with the possibility of losing their own life. They didn't care about Gentiles. They wanted to keep them out. God and our kind are on the inside. Everybody else is, is out. But what Christ did in his coming is to bring down that barrier because he abolished the law. The moral law is translated into other principles in the New Testament. The civil law is abolished because he created a new nation, a new people, with a new, uh, with a new constitution. And the ceremonial law, Christ himself fulfilled in his own person in the temple. He swept aside the law so it could no longer be used as the basis for excluding other people. And then in A.D. 70, when the Romans uh, destroyed the temple, the, the wall itself came down. And Paul says, what Christ did in the cross is that he made both groups one. He created a new man, as he puts it, a new mankind, a new race. So that today there aren't many races, there's only one race, the human race, identified with, with Jesus Christ. And therefore all of the distinctions on the basis of race or class or sex no longer make any difference. The differences are there. I mean, I can look at you and tell that you're men and women and you're old and young. You're all different. But the differences no longer make any difference. They don't matter. Uh, turn with me to Colossians, the third chapter. Here in another place, Paul says essentially the same thing. Verse 10, he says, You have put on the new man. The attitude of, of one human race who is being renewed in a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarian, that's what the Greeks called everybody else in the world except Greeks. Scythian, that's what the Romans called everyone else who was not a Roman. Slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. 
and then again in Galatians, the third chapter. Here it's even more clear. Verse 28. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So all distinctions based on race, based on class, based on sex, are sin. Racism, elitism, class distinctions, sexism, it's sin. Because it's a denial of the new humanity that that God has created. Now let's turn back to uh, Ephesians again. Ephesians 2. Paul says in verse 14 that uh, Christ is our peace. He is the basis of our peace. In verse 15, he says that uh, he made the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new humanity, one race. Thus establishing, thus making peace. He is the basis of our peace. He made peace. And in verse 16, he did so that he might reconcile them both in one body, that is the church, to God, through the cross, by it having put to death the hostility. In other words, he not only resolved the problem that separated man from man, but he resolved the problem that separated God from man. He made one new humanity, and he, by dying on the cross for the sins of all humanity, he reconciled that new man to God. So that now there is only one race reconciled to God. And then having made peace, he came and preached peace to those who were far away, And peace to those who were near. He not only preached it to the Jew, but also the Gentile, because both needed to hear. Neither were near God. Both needed to be reconciled to God. Jesus' whole life was a preachment of peace. That's why he's called the Prince of Peace. The angels announced his coming by saying, Peace on earth to those who are not men of goodwill, but men who are approved by him, those who seek out Messiah, those those who are searching for God, those who look for reconciliation with God. They have peace. There's so much nonsense pervade at, at Christmas about peace. You know, just in, by giving gifts and, and uh, some kind of gooey feeling you get during the Christmas season that somehow it's going to carry over and the world's going to have peace. They miss the whole point. The, the announcement of the angels is to the effect that, uh, that he came to make peace by dying on the cross and reconciling man to man and reconciling man to God. That's how peace is, is made. And then he, he lived that way through his entire life. He, he never did discriminate against women or, or the poor or the rich or the elite. He didn't discriminate on the basis of culture uh, or, or race or education, color of skin. Those things didn't matter to Jesus. And then he went to the cross and made peace by his death on the cross. And then the apostles went out and preached the fact that peace was made. And that is our function still today as a church, to live out the peace that he's made, to exemplify it, and to preach it. Consequently, he says in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers, those of you who have no home. You are not aliens, those of you who have no country. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. That is, you are citizens of the new state of Israel. You've been joined with the saints. The saints here is the word that's used for the Old Testament saints, the Hasidim, the holy ones, those that were 
devoted to the covenant, those that have been brought, brought near to God. We are citizens with them of, of this new kingdom, the new Israel. And we are members of God's household. There's a new family created. God is the father. The Lord Jesus is our brother. And everyone else in the family is our brother and sister. And thirdly, there is a new temple being erected in which we are integral parts. He says this is a, a house that's being built in which God will dwell and is built upon the foundation Christ himself is the cornerstone. He's the stone from which all other stones are keyed and laid. And uh, the foundation itself is the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets. The prophets here, I think, refers to the New Testament prophets rather than the Old Testament prophets. Over in chapter 3, verse 5, he refers to certain things that were made known, not uh, to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. These are men to whom revelation was made. And they wrote it down. And this is the result of their preaching and, and their writing. What Paul is saying is that the church is built upon the foundation of Christ and the Scriptures. This is the foundation document of the church, not the uh, Constitution of the United States, as worthy as that document is. Not the constitution of this church or the bylaws, but uh, this book. The church is built on the foundation of Scripture, not Scripture plus tradition, not Scripture plus what some other teacher thinks. The church is built on, on this foundation. And the whole thing, he says, is growing together into, a, into an enormous temple in which God dwells. There's some indication that verse 21 should be translated, in whom... Every building being fitted together is rising to be a holy temple in the Lord, in which case he would be referring to the individual local churches. This church is joined together with Central Assembly and uh, the Nazarene churches in town and other churches throughout the world and growing into a, to a holy temple in which God dwells. God doesn't dwell in holy buildings. He dwells in holy people, people, people that acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. This building is not the church. That's why we have on our sign, uh, Cole Community Church meets here, because you're the church. This is not a sanctuary that we're meeting in. This is a room. It's an auditorium. You are the sanctuary of, of God. I, I still uh, bristle every time I see in Sunday school material or or other literature, a, a picture of a church building with the caption, this is the house of God. It makes me want to tear what's left of my remaining hair out. That is not the church of God, or the house of God. There are no holy buildings any longer. The temple was destroyed in AD 70, and the question was, where in the world do we worship now? Jesus has already laid the foundation for the destruction of the temple when he said to the woman at the well, when she said, you know, should we worship here at Mount Gerizim or down there in Jerusalem? And, and Jesus said, look, it doesn't make any difference. The time is coming and now is where pe when people will worship spirit, uh, God in spirit and truth. It's not the place in which you worship. It's the people. That's where you worship God. And this, uh, this group right here is one of the bricks in this temple that he's building all over the world to his glory. Now, that's the, that's the argument of the passage. And uh, it, it, it's a passage that's very easy to understand. It, it, it falls together very nicely. And, 
and it's it's understandable. Uh, like Mark Twain, I, I, it is not what I don't understand about the passage that bothers me. It's what I do understand. Because if I read this passage correctly, and, I, and I'm sure I have, then what Paul is saying is that racism is sin. If I discriminate against a brother on the basis of the color of his skin, it is sin. I was, uh, I was raised in the South, in, in Texas, and uh, back in those days they had fountains for whites, water fountains for whites, and water fountains for blacks. They had seating areas for, for coloreds, as they were called then, and, and whites in bus stations, and uh, on the buses they had these little signs that said uh, white and colored. And uh, colored people were expected to sit behind the sign that said colored. On many occasions, I saw the bus fill up with white people, and when uh, there were too many whites standing, somebody would walk back and flip the sign so that white people could sit down and, and the black people had to stand up. And I never heard anyone speak out against that sort of thing. And yet Scripture says the racism is a sin. I heard a man say one time, you can be a drunk and they'll throw you out of the church. You can be a racist and they'll make a deacon out of you. It's sad, but it's true. I, I know people that uh, can smell heresy like a hunting hound. They can smell it a mile off. Some slight deviation from doctrine, they're on you. But they're racist. I've been reading uh, Os Guinness' book, The uh, Gravedigger File. He has a great cartoon in there. shows a group of crusaders marching against the enemy. They're all armed to the teeth, carrying banners, Christians against abortion, Christians against alcohol. leader of the band says to uh, someone next to him, The enemy's not in sight. I think we have him on the run. While the back ranks are being decimated, there are crusaders lying all over the ground with arrows sticking out of their back. An enemy is coming over the hill with banners of racism, materialism. And I thought, he's so right. He's so right. We, we are so right in our doctrine, so right in our orthodoxy, and, and down in our hearts, we're, we're still racist. We, we just feel awkward and uncomfortable resistant toward people of another culture, another class. When Paul tells us there's only one class, there's only one race, there's only one people, it's the human race, and we need to include them in. Ray Stedman used to quote a little poem that goes, uh, He drew a circle that included me out. A heretic. A thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that included them in. And that's what Paul is saying. Racism of any form is sin. Red, yellow, black, white, they are precious in his sight. And the children sang for us. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. They're precious in his sight. Are they precious in our sight? Uh, sexism is a sin. I, I get a little uneasy around uh, evangelical feminists. Uh, 
of the things that uh, they're saying and I like some of the way that they're saying it. I ran into a few uh, while I was at Seattle Pacific University in a, frater- in a dorm meeting, and uh, they, to me, they sounded like home-like chainsaws. <laughs> and I don't like that approach, but I understand where they're coming from. I hear what they're saying. One of them said to me, all my life, all I've heard from preachers is women be subject, women be subject, women be subject. When is anybody going to say to the men, men love your wives like Christ loves the church? These guys, they come home after a day at work and they come on like petty potentates and start throwing their weight around and telling everybody where to go and how to jump and how high to jump. Get in the kitchen, wash the dishes, I've got television to watch or whatever. Is it any wonder that... uh, Some of these dear women put up with it so long and then take a hike. I'm not saying they should. Or men do not take seriously what their wives have to say. Carolyn pointed out to me uh, a kind of antipathy that I have toward uh, women authors of books. I tend to avoid them. So that's a little sexist, isn't it? Yeah, I have to admit that. You know, some of some of you know, guys, some some of your wives have more wisdom in their little finger than you have in your whole head. <laughs> Why don't we listen? Peter says they are joint heirs with us of eternal life. They have wisdom. Why don't we listen to them? Why don't we take their counsel? We throw our weight around, go off doing our own thing, make all these crazy decisions, you know, without once telling our wives or asking our wives what they think, because we think that's that's being manly. But it's not. It's being sexist. It's a sin to be sectarian. People ask me, are you charismatic? I say, no, but I'm not anti-charismatic either. Those are brothers. And I, I don't I don't particularly agree with their view of sanctification, but they're brothers and sisters in Christ. I can't despise them. I can't exclude them. I can't put them out there because they're near to God. He loves them, cares about them. Or evangelical Catholics. Or members of any other group to sin, to be sectarian, and to separate on the basis of non-essentials. And it's a sin to split churches. Um, This church, as you know, went through a disastrous split about seven years ago, and we've tried to do everything we can to effect a reconciliation, but the effects of that split go on and on and on. Still to this day, we're reaping the the consequences of of that split. And there is a sister church now in Twin Falls that is in the process of splitting. Not on the basis of theology. Churches never split, at least in my experience. I have yet to run across a church that split on the basis of theology. It is almost always on the basis of personality or some non-essential. And what kind of witness do we leave with the world when we who preach peace cannot maintain peace among ourselves? Now, I tell you the situation at Twin Falls, not to bring down wrath on them. Those are brothers that we need to love, and we need to appeal to them to get back together, to humble themselves and stop this nonsense. And... and Work hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Sure, they don't agree, but what difference does that make? They've been brought near to God, and they need to work together to resolve their 
their conflict and effect a resolution on a godly basis, not by splitting and dividing up. In a city like Twin Falls, that, that can only have devastating, uh, have a devastating effect on the, on the witness of the gospel to non-Christians in that town. We need to do everything we can, lovingly, to help them restore uh, the unity of that body. And I'd say the same for us. Whatever happens in the years ahead, no matter what disagreements we may fall into over, over minor points of doctrine or, or any other uh, non-essential, let's just commit ourselves to being one in, in the Spirit, that we are not going to split. Someday we may divide, and I hope we can divide and, and start churches in other parts of uh, Boise instead of continuing to grow here. Let's get out where, uh, where, the need, where greater needs exist. But never split with animosity. Uh, if you get tired of me, you can throw me out. But for goodness sake, don't split. It's sin. Racism. Sexism. Elitism. Sectarianism. And those things are clearly spelled out in Scripture as a denial of the unity that, that God has built into his body. And we need to maintain, work hard to maintain the unity that God has created. Let's pray. Gracious Father, forgive us for our failure in this area. All of us have fallen short of the standard. We've missed the mark. We, uh, we really need help because uh, so many of these biases and prejudices that, that we have are so deep-seated and uh, almost unknown to us, unnoticed and recognized for what they are. And we, we, we ask for eyes to see those areas in which we have wrongfully divided up the, the body of Christ on the basis of politics or sex or race or on any other basis. And help us to cling together uh, as, as one, as one people, a people whom you've created. And, and help us to live out along with our other brothers and sisters in the city of Boise, the unity and the peace that you've, you've given to us so that the world will, will see that we love each other and by that means we'll give witness to your supernatural life-changing power. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.